0: Friends, our New Testament lesson today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. This passage takes place shortly after the resurrection, after Jesus is raised, and then, as the Gospel of Luke tells it, Jesus walks with some men on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him until he takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and shares it with them. Then, scripture says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Those men went and they told the disciples what had happened. That takes us through verse 35. Today we begin with verse 36. While they were talking about all that had taken place, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened, and why do doubts arise in your heart? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet while in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I owe our confirmation class an apology for this sermon. You see, every time we gather together, we eat. We eat together because it's practical. We tend to meet right after this service concludes, but it's also theological. We've been talking for the past few weeks about how Jesus' ministry is in so many ways defined by his table. Where it can be found, who is invited, what he says, and why people keep coming back for more. But more than anything, our confirmation class begins with a shared meal because it's relational. You learn an awful lot about one another when you eat together. It was at our table that I learned just how stressful applying to high school really is. It was at our table that I learned who prefers dogs and who prefers cats and who can't distinguish between gerbils and hamsters. It was at our table that I learned there would be one hard and fast rule when it came to our menu. Absolutely no fish. Ever. In my defense, this sermon isn't entirely my fault. Jesus asks for something to eat, and it's the disciples who give him fish. Now, broadly speaking, this should come as no surprise to us, at least... Well, maybe the fish is a surprise, but the fact that Jesus eats is not. The way that the Gospels tell it, Jesus eats throughout his ministry. So if he spends his life eating, why shouldn't he spend his resurrected life eating too? The details are a bit different. He comes to his anxious disciples and offers them peace. He calms their fears, shows them his hands and his feet. And then he, the one who always offered the meal, the one who has always been the provider, the one who can take water and turn it into wine and take crumbs and turn them into a feast, well, this time he asks them for something to eat. Ben Witherington and Amy Jill Levine are some of the foremost scholars of the Gospels. One of them is Christian and the other is Jewish, and together they observe that post-resurrection, the disciples are still doubting. And then in a startling non-sequitur, they say, Jesus asks if they have anything to eat. Given the images of food, feeding, and table that permeate this gospel, this request is more than just a wish for a late-night snack. Never does Jesus state that he is hungry. The food he requires is not for his own sustenance, it is for the disciples' instruction. Ghosts do not eat, and neither do angels, but resurrected bodies do. Look, he says, it's me. It's really me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. And look, watch me eat. You remember how often we ate together, right? I still need to eat. We still need to eat. Look, he says, it is I myself. And in saying that, he is telling them death has lost its power to destroy anything about him. Fred Craddock was a preacher with a particular gift for storytelling. One of his most memorable anecdotes was about how he and his sisters would pass the time during long summers in his small town. They would play games together, and one of his favorites was hide-and-seek, he says that he loved this game because even in his adulthood, he was a rather small man, so he was an even smaller child, and that gave him a considerable advantage while hiding. He said that he could hide in places his sisters didn't even know were places. And so one day, in the middle of the game, he crawled up under the front steps. He got under the very bottom step up against the porch. His sisters, they were running up and down those steps looking for him, but he was perfectly hidden, out of sight, and in the dark. He thought to himself, they will never find me. They will never find me. They will never find me. And then it dawned on him, they will never find me. And so, he said, he stuck his toe out from under the steps, And as soon as he did that, one of his sisters screamed, I found you! You see, even in that game, even when we think what we want is to hide, what we really want is to be found. And resurrection promises us that this much is true. We are found forever. Absolutely nothing about us is lost. And this table reassures us every time that you do not need to hide. There is a place for you here, so come and eat. You see, the way that God made this world, the way that Jesus understands this world, the way that we are called to move through this world, food is about nutrition, but never just about nutrition. And like we learned last week, clothes are about our wardrobe, but never just about our wardrobe. And stewardship, it is about money and generosity, but it is never just about money and generosity. I am convinced that stewardship at its very deepest core is about love. And ultimately, that's why we're reading this scripture passage on this day It's the very last story of Jesus sharing a meal. And with this particular meal, he promises that resurrection ensures that we will never be left behind. Look, it's me. It is I myself, he says. This is not a trick. It's me, just the way you have always known me. And it's me, different than you have ever known me before. So, of course, he asks if they have anything to eat. I can't imagine that they could eat even a single bite with him and not remember all of the other meals they had shared. The last time was in that upper room with bread that he broke and the cup that he poured. He told them that this world would break his body, but it could not break his love. And that's exactly what they were witnessing. There was that meal at Levi's house. Levi, the tax collector, if you remember him, it was at that meal that Jesus showed his followers that he would not treat unrighteous people the way that we do. We tend to keep our distance, but not Jesus. He always goes right where the brokenness is. There was the feeding of the 5,000, where the disciples, they turned and they looked at the crowd and they wanted to send them away Them is such a lonely word. Jesus couldn't do that, because to him, they weren't them. They were us. He visited Mary and Martha, who each approached his visit and meal preparations differently. And he reminded us that sometimes, particularly when your world is falling apart, we need to listen to Jesus. And there was his meal with Zacchaeus. After that meal, Zacchaeus spent every day practicing his faith. He took care of the poor and he was fair in his work and he trusted that someday salvation would come. An awful lot happened at that table. An awful lot happens every time Jesus comes to a table, every time we come to a table. Because what Jesus reveals here is how life is to be lived. At the table, we see the world the way that it is, but we also see the world the way the power of God's love can make it. When Jesus is at the table, we well, we get a taste of our own future. It's where relationship is claimed and friendship is practiced. It's where grace is served and forgiveness is sampled. And it's where our very best selves are called forth. Our best selves individually, but also our best selves as a church. Here is what I'm trying to say, that resurrection is not just life that never ends, I don't think that would actually be very good news at all. Resurrection is life that is redeemed, life that is transformed. It's when we become exactly the way God has always intended for us to be. I've been thinking an awful lot about time and history lately, and how what happens, I think, is that we spend our entire lives becoming ourselves. We spend a lifetime becoming the person we are. This is this is what I mean. This is the very best way I know to explain it. When I was 10 years old, I loved reading. I loved it so much, I really didn't want to do anything else. Birthdays and Christmases were full of books and more books, there was probably some clothes and socks thrown in, but I didn't care about any of that. I just wanted to read. But by the time I was 15, that had changed a little bit. I still loved to read, but in high school I had discovered field hockey, and so I would wake early every morning and run a few miles before school I would stay after school for practice and every night before bed, much to the dismay of my parents, I would go into the basement and practice even a bit more. Anytime I thought about college, I thought how I wanted to go to a good school, but I wanted to make sure I could keep playing hockey while I was there. When I was 20, I was in college. I was majoring in creative writing, and I was playing field hockey. But then I broke my ankle, and I missed most of the season my junior year. And it was during that time that I realized there are a whole host of other activities that happen at college when you don't spend your whole time on a playing field. I had written occasionally for the school newspaper, but with more time on my hands, I was invited to be one of the editors. When my senior year rolled around, I didn't go back to playing hockey anymore. Somehow it didn't matter as much as it once had. And it was in those last years of college that I wandered into a Presbyterian church for the first time. You see, there are still traces of that 10-year-old and that 15-year-old and that 20-year-old in me. But they are a little harder to find these days. Last month, I turned 40. I still love reading, but I now realize that no matter how many books I read, I am not likely to read all of them before I die. I still run but now it's mainly in circles around my dining room table, chasing a puppy. I spend more time in church each week now than I did in an entire year of my childhood. And every day I walk down busy New York streets, a far cry from my Midwest upbringing. Now, if at age 10 or 15 or 20, you would have told me who I would be now, I would have told you it was utterly impossible. I couldn't have even imagined such a thing. And the mystery is that I am both at the same time. I am and I'm not the ten-year-old who wouldn't ever take her nose out of the book. I am that kid, but I'm not that kid. The process of becoming who we are... It takes a lifetime, and it isn't completed until the resurrection. Not one of us is finished. Now, this is true for me again, and it is true for you again, but most importantly on this day, it is true for us as a congregation. We are who we have been. That is not lost or diminished, not a single bit but neither is God finished with us. Jesus is asking us here and now, today, do you have anything to eat? And here's what I know. Every time we gather at this table, he shows up and grace is served and hope is known and we get a taste of our future. I don't know what it will look like. I do trust that it will be absolutely delicious, even if you don't like fish. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray, amen.